Well, turn with me to Ezra chapter 8. Ezra chapter 8. And um, we'll, we're going to cover the, the whole chapter, but let's just begin in one place in verse 22. The second half of verse 22, I think, is a, the hinge of, of the chapter. Uh, Ezra says in the beginning of verse 22, he says, For I was ashamed to request of the king an escort of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy on the road. Because we had spoken to the king, saying, and listen to what Ezra has said to the king, The hand of our God is upon all those for good who seek him. But his power and his wrath are against all those who forsake him. So, according to what Ezra has told us, according to the Scripture as it has been inspired by the Holy Spirit and, and passed down through the ages to us, we know these two things from this one verse. That the hand of the Lord works for good to those who seek Him. And His power and His wrath is against all those who forsake Him. His hand works for good to those who seek Him, and His power and His wrath are against those who forsake Him. And I don't mean to sound too simple this morning when I say this, but everyone falls into one of those two categories. Everyone is either seeking the Lord or forsaking Him. We like to think that there's some middle-of-the-road category where we can... Uh, believe in Him and we can love Him and follow Him and we may not be passionate and sold out like we see some people are, but we're not really forsaking Him or doing anything wrong either. There's just this comfortable little middle-of-the-road place. And a lot of people are there, and, and I'll just be honest with you, I've spent a lot of my Christian life there. For those who seek Him, He puts His hand on them. For those who forsake Him, He has His wrath. Now, unbelievers only forsake Him. Because Romans 3 tells us that there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who seeks after God. See, there really are no seeker-sensitive churches. Uh, because if uh, a church was made up of only people who sought after God, those churches would be empty. There would be no one, because the Scripture tells us no one seeks after God. Now, there may be people who are seeking for something that they know not what, they may be seeking for some fulfillment or some pleasure or for some higher meaning in their life. And they may associate that with religion or spirituality. But in reality, when it comes down to the heart of the matter, no one seeks after God. Apart from the work of God in their hearts by the Holy Spirit. Apart from knowing Jesus. So all unbelievers forsake God. Only believers can seek Him. Well, that, that seems to make sense, right? If all believers forsake Him, only believers can seek Him. Because whenever we are born again, God makes us a new creation. The old man has passed away. Behold, all things are become new, right? By grace you have been saved through faith. God has given you this gift of new life. He's made you a new person, a new creation. You are now in Christ. And because the Holy Spirit lives in you, you can seek after God. Are you seeking after God? Do you long for Him more? Do you want to know Him better? Do you want to increase that intimacy in your relationship with Him? Are you seeking after God? So, only or unbelievers can only forsake. Only believers can seek. But many believers, in practice, forsake the Lord. 
Now, that doesn't mean that um, they don't love him at all. There are people who have been born again, who seem to be kind of caught in the middle somewhere. And maybe they even read their Bible and maybe you uh, try to obey it and, and do what it says. And you, you try to serve in the church and do these things that you think are right. But really, you're not seeking the Lord. He's not leading you in your life. You don't have intimacy, fellowship with him. Well, does that mean that we're forsaking? Well, in practice, yes. Because we may be trying to do things for God, we may be trying to obey the Scriptures, but we're not doing it in His power. We're not seeking His direction, trying to do it His way. We're trying to do it in our own strength. And that's where I say that I've spent a good part of my Christian life. Maybe doing the right things, trying to obey God, but not really seeking Him. And in practice, I've just forsaken Him. I'm trying to do things for Him, but I'm not doing it by His power or by His leading. Now clearly, from what we've seen in chapter 7 and 8, Ezra sought the Lord. Ezra sought the Lord because we see at least five times that, the, that Ezra says the hand of the Lord was upon him, or the hand of God was with him, or the good hand of the Lord was upon us. Over and over and over again, the Scriptures tell us that the hand of the Lord was on Ezra. And if it's true that the hand of the Lord is on those who seek Him, then surely Ezra was one who sought the Lord. I think we see that demonstrated in the chapter that we're considering today. And as we work our way through this chapter, we won't look at every single verse, but I want us to consider this as we, we look. What are some ways that we see God's good hand at work? What do we see when God's hand is on a man like Ezra? What do we see when God's hand is at work? We see, one, that the good hand of God calls people into His service. He calls people into His service. Those first 14 verses of chapter 8 is just one long list of names. And this is the, the, the second wave of, of people who are traveling from Babylon back to Jerusalem. Zerubbabel took the first group some 60 years before. And now Ezra's come along and he's leading another group back. Verse 15 says this, Now I gathered them, that is all these who were coming with me, I've gathered them by the river that flows to Ahava, and we camped there three days. And I looked among the people and the priests and found none of the sons of Levi there. And why is that significant? We, we talked a little bit about it last week. Ezra's lineage goes back to Aaron. So that he's from Levi and he could be a priest. He's, he's in that lineage. But if you're going to have people who are going back to Jerusalem to worship God, people who are going to work in the temple, you have to have people who are qualified to do the jobs. You have to have Levites if you're going to run a temple. In Israel. But Ezra comes along and he's looking at all these people who have come along with him to travel back to Jerusalem. And the absence of the Levites is very noticeable. The, the king has given this decree. We read it back in chapter 7 that all who want to go back to Jerusalem can go back to Jerusalem. It's just an open invitation. If you want to go, you can go. Why are there no Levites here? Do none of them want to go? Could it be that they were a little too comfortable in Babylon to pack up everything and move to a new place and start over? 
I mean, they've been here their whole lives at this point. They've got jobs. They've got families. That Some of them maybe have started, started businesses. They, they know their neighbors. Things might be going well for them, and they're, they're very, very well established where they are. It's really inconvenient to just pack up everything and move to a city that needs to be rebuilt. That sounds like a lot of work. So what does Ezra do? Well, he sends people to find some Levites. We're missing some Levites. Let's go get them. Verse 2 or 16, he says, I sent for Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jerob, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, Meshulam, leaders also for Jorarab and Elnathan. Elnathan must have been a popular name back then. Men of understanding. Verse 17, I gave them a command for Ido, the chief man at the place of Casaphia, and I told them what they should say to Ido and his brethren, the Nethanim, at the place Casaphia, that they should bring us servants for the house of our God. Ezra saw the need. He saw the people were missing. He went out to find them. And by the good hand of God, God gave them some Levites. Verse 18, by the good hand of God. Now, but was it by our recruiting tactics? Was it by the, the speech that Ezra told the, the men to say? Was it uh, by the appeal that they were able to make or the, the benefits that they could convey? No, the Levites came, he says, by the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of understanding. He goes on to talk about the, the Levites and the, the temple servants who have come. I wonder if it is in the church of God that the reason we may not have all of the workers that we need is because many of us are very comfortable in Babylon. If here we are settled in the world, we have our homes, we have our cars, we have our jobs, our families all around, we're at least accessible. And to die to ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus just sounds like it costs a whole lot. It does. It's inconvenient to set aside the things that you want, the things that you love, the, the goals and the dreams that you may have for yourself to say, I'm giving everything up to go follow Jesus. To give my life to serve him. And here in the church, we, we see that there are people who are missing. I mean, we all know people who need to be in the church this morning. We know people who maybe say that they've been born again, but they're not living for the Lord. We all know lost people. I hope. We know people who need to be born again, who need to be following the Lord. They need to be here, but they're not. So what do we do? It's the first part of the Great Commission, the very first word. Go. Go get them. Go get them. That's what we've been called to do. Go and make disciples of all the nations. And the nations begins in Pilate Mountain for us. The nations for us begins in the Simmons Grove community. Wherever it is you work or go to school or whoever your neighbors are, go. Start a conversation. Tell them the good news about Jesus. Call them to follow. Now listen, if they will follow, if they leave behind the world and leave behind their former loves and come and follow Jesus, it won't be because you presented the gospel so well. 
It won't be because of anything that you do. If anyone is born again, friends, it'll be because the good hand of our God was upon us. Now, I want to see people be saved. I can't convince people to be saved. If I do it, it's useless. It's not going to last. I can present a logical case for giving up the world and following Jesus. Well, it makes sense, doesn't it? You, you don't want to do something that's going to perish when Jesus comes, and you want to do something that lasts forever. You want to live forever. I can present a case like that, but that won't save people. If we're going to preach the gospel, if we're going to tell people the message of Jesus, and they're going to respond and come, it's going to have to be because the good hand of our God is upon us. And who is it that the good hand of God is upon those who seek Him. Those who seek Him. Raise your children right. Bring them to church. Take them to Sunday school. Tell them what the Bible says. Preach the gospel at home and, and pray that they'll follow Jesus. But they only will if the good hand of God is upon us. It's God's work. Jesus is seeking to save those who are lost. We see that he calls people into his service, but also that he directs those who seek him. He directs those who seek him. Look there at verse 21. Before we read it, just know that this journey was dangerous. From what we read here in the, the chapter, it, it's about a four-month trip. And you've got... Families, uh, priests, you've got the treasure that has been given to take and to spend and to use in the temple to bring sacrifices. And they aren't exactly an army. I mean, who have they been trying to recruit? The religious leaders. They want, they want people who can come work in the temple. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, if somebody comes to do harm at this church, your pastor is not going to be your first line of defense. I'm useless. I'll be the first one down. The kids uh, aren't exactly going to be much help if they're attacked on the road. They're going to be the, the first at risk. So this is a dangerous journey, and they've got all this money. They might as well be wearing a sign that says, Hey, we have money, come rob us. Verse 26 tells us how much, verse 26 and 27 tells us how much gold and silver it was that they carried, and it was a lot, along with the other articles for the temple. But Ezra didn't want to ask for an army from the king. Why? Because of the, he didn't want to diminish his testimony. He had already said to the king. He had already told the king this. He says, the hand of our God is upon all those for good who seek him. His power and his wrath are against those who forsake him. And I think in this case, we would lump Ezra and his traveling companions in those who are seeking the Lord and those who would attack them as those who are forsaking the Lord. And he cares so much about his testimony before the king. I told the king the Lord would take care of us. I'm ashamed to go ask for an army now. And maybe if he hadn't said that to start with, he could have asked for help. Could have asked for protection from the king. And the king would have understood why he was asking. But he had already said, I know that God's going to take care of us. And he cared more about God's name before the pagan king than his own safety. 
That's a lesson in itself. He cared more about God's name and his testimony before the king than his own safety. He said God would take care of him. Now he's just stuck trusting God. I can't ask for an army now. So what does he do? Verse 21, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him the right way for us and our little ones and all our possessions. This verse has been hanging on to me for a few weeks now. And fasting is one of those things we don't talk about all that often. We, it's just, and maybe there's a reason for that. As Jesus says, not to do it to be seen by men. So maybe there are more people fasting than, than we realize. I, I kind of doubt it. Just because that's not the kind of world we live in where we deprive ourselves of things we like to seek after God. Fasting is always, Old Testament, New Testament, it's always associated with prayer. That's what Ezra's doing here. He realizes he has a need. He realizes it's a dangerous journey. He realizes he wants the king to, to see God as good and as, and, and as one who will protect him. And so his solution, his, his, the, the thing he decides to do is to fast and pray. Fasting expresses how seriously we need God. Whenever we have a need or we have a desire, something we want to see God do, when we fast and we deprive ourselves of food and it comes around middle of the day and our stomachs growl and you start to get that little ache, that little pain, you feel that and you turn that thing back around to God in a prayer and you say, God, I'm hungry. I want food a lot right now, but I want you and I need you more than I need food. That's what fasting is. It's an expression of dependence on God and our need for God. When it comes to the, the teaching of Jesus, he just assumes we'll fast. It's interesting that there is no command in the New Testament to fast. But Jesus assumes that we will. In, in uh, Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus teaches on uh, get charitable giving, he teaches on prayer, and he teaches on fasting. And all three of those things, he doesn't say, if you do these things, if you decide to be charitable, if you decide to pray, if you decide to fast, this is how you should do it. No, he says, when you do these things, when you give. When you pray. And then after that he says, when you fast. Jesus assumes that his people will be fasting and praying. Later on, Jesus' disciples, Jesus and his disciples are approached and they say, Hey, the Pharisees and their disciples, they're fasting. John the Baptist and his disciples, they're fasting. Why don't your disciples fast? And Jesus says, Why would the guests fast when the bridegroom is with them. The friends of the bridegroom fast when the bridegroom is with them. I mean, you don't go to a wedding and say, I'm not eating, I'm fasting. No, you go to a wedding to celebrate and to feast because you're there for that purpose. And Jesus says, I'm the bridegroom. I'm here with them. What reason do they have to fast? But he says, a day is coming when I will not be with them. And he says this, then they will fast. Is Jesus here with you right now? By the Holy Spirit, yes, but He's not physically here. We're waiting on His return. Jesus says, the day's going to come when I won't be with them, and then they will fast. In this period, in this season of, long 2,000 year season of church history, the day that we're living in when Jesus is not physically present with us and we're not with Him in heaven yet, are we fasting and praying and seeking Him? Because Jesus just assumed we would. And fasting... Just another word about fasting. It isn't always from food. 
That's sort of the, the, the most popular, I think one of the best ways to fast is to deprive yourself from food because that's such a basic need. But, you know, for some people, you, you, your health won't allow that. You can't go long terms without, without eating. Or maybe you, you have other things that, are, that have a hold on you besides food. Maybe you need to just turn off the news for a couple of days. You turn off your social media for a week or a month. And fast from those things. And, and every time you reach for your phone and start to open Facebook, you catch yourself and say, wait, I'm not going to do that right now. Instead, I'm going to pray. Or you sit down in the evening after supper and you grab the remote and you say, wait, I'm fasting from television. I'm going to spend some time now in prayer. Or if it is a mealtime, you feel the pain in your stomach, you know it's lunchtime, and instead of going to eat, you go and you pray. And seek after God. What was Ezra's purpose in this? Verse 21, he says, he says, I proclaim to fast that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him the right way. And he says, for us, for our little ones, for our possessions. So Ezra is fasting and he's praying because he has two needs. One, to humble himself. And two, he needs direction. He knows that the road is hard ahead. He needs to know the right way to go for himself, for his little ones, and his possessions. I think that's a good way for us to pray. I think it would be good for some Christians to get serious and humble themselves before God and fast and pray. Say, Lord, what direction do you have for me? What direction do you have for my children? What direction do you have for my stuff? What did the Lord do? What's the response to fasting and prayer? Verse 23 says, So we fasted and entreated our God for this, and He what? Answered our prayer. Isn't it amazing when we pray for things and then God answers us and then we're surprised that He answered us? Has anybody experienced that besides me? Am I the only one who lacks faith here some days? God, I really need you to do this. Lord, would you help us? Would you bring this to pass? And then He does it. Wait a second, you really did it? Of course he did. Why wouldn't we expect God to answer our prayers if we're praying according to his will? It doesn't mean that when you fast that you're twisting God's arm and he's always going to do exactly what you ask him to do. No, but when you fast and when you pray, you're conforming yourself to the image of Christ because Jesus fasted and prayed and he sought the face of his father. Let's read the Gospels. So we see the good hand of God is at work in calling people into His service. We see the good hand of God at work in directing those who seek Him. And we see the good hand of God at work in delivering His people safely home. Verse 28, there's, he, he separates the, the gold and the silver and all these articles out to the Levites as they travel. And then he says to them in verse 28, You are holy to the Lord. You are holy to the Lord. Now I kind of wonder... If the reason Christians don't fast and pray and seek God as they ought is because a lot of Christians don't realize who they are in God's eyes. Can I say this to you? If you're born again, just you know, raise your hand in your head. I'm not going to ask you to right now. But if you're a Christian and you know that you are and you've got a relationship with the Lord, can I, can I just say this to you? You are holy to the Lord. You are consecrated. You are set apart. You are a saint. And your wife just elbowed you in the rib as hard as you could, hard as she could. You're a saint. You don't always live like it. But because of who you are in Christ, you are a saint. You are holy. You're set apart for God's good use. What did Peter say? 
He said, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. You once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. If you are in Christ, if you've been born again, condemnation is removed. There is no judgment hanging over your head. There is nothing to be, uh, to dread about God. Because He loves you. And you belong to Him. You're wholly set apart. You're His saint. And I think if we realize that, if we recognize that we have that kind of standing before God in Jesus, we'd be a little more bold about coming to Him and seeking His face. And bringing our requests to Him. By His goodness, by, the, by His good hand, as we've seen here in these cha this chapter, God delivers them to their destination. Verse 31 says, We departed from the river of Havah on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem, and the hand of our God was upon us, and He delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambush along the road. So we came to Jerusalem. They made it. They were safe. You say, well, that's an uneventful journey. Exactly. That's what they were hoping for, was an uneventful journey. Just to make it there safely. Friends, one day, we will make it safely home. We're on a journey. We are, if we've been born again, holy to the Lord. He's entrusted us with whatever He's entrusted you with. Here they've been entrusted with gold and silver and items to carry along the way. You've been entrusted with your family and, and your friends and your job and your church and whatever responsibilities you have. God's entrusted these things into your care. And one day He will take us, deliver us safely home. And it won't be because we were just all that great. It'll be because of His good hand. Because He was with us. By His goodness, God ensured that they lost nothing that they were given. You can read down in the, the further verses of how they counted out the money that they had been given and the gold and the silver and all of it was there. They didn't lose anything. And I just want to assure you what Philippians says. Paul says to the Philippians that the one who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. God has started a work in you if you belong to Him and He will complete it. He will deliver you safely home. You will make it. If you belong to Him, by His good hand. I think the main point just keeps coming back to this. God's mighty hand works for the good of those who seek Him. I want to see God's mighty hand at work. I want to see the Lord work in my own life, and in my own family, and in our church. And I'll just go ahead and, and testify before you. I praise Him that I've seen some prayers answered in my own heart. Things God's been doing in me. I've seen prayers answered in my own home. I praise God for the work that He's doing there. And I've got some things I'm, I'm, I'm begging Him to do here in our congregation, in our church. And I believe He's going to do it. But I think He wants more than just the pastor to be praying for the church. He wants His people, His holy people, His consecrated saints to fast and pray and seek His face. And I'm going to ask you to do that in a very specific way. Eli's going to put the, these points on the screen here, and you can write these down or take a picture of it or whatever to remember it. I'm going to ask you to fast with me and pray. Every Wednesday between now and Easter, 
That's six Wednesdays. If you can do it, if your health allows a 24-hour fast, go home on Tuesday night, eat your supper like usual, cut yourself off. When you get up Wednesday morning to eat your breakfast, pray instead. When Wednesday around noon rolls around to eat your lunch, pray instead of eat. Seek God. Go back home on Wednesday, eat you some supper and come on to church. You're missing two meals for a 24-hour fast. From dinner Tuesday to dinner Wednesday. Now, if your health won't allow you to go that long without food, try skipping one meal. Ask your doctor what he recommends, okay? There are other things you can fast from. Keep the television off. Don't go on Facebook. Instead of doing these things that take our time, get on your knees and seek God's face for our church. And I'm asking you to pray for these three things. These three things. One, that God will humble us and make us holy. You pray for your own heart first. Pray that God will help you to be humble before him and that he'll make you like Jesus. That he'll rid you of your sin and make you holy. Second, we're going to pray for that second thing that's up there that's slipping my mind right now. And I'm going to have to turn around and look at it. That God will give us clear direction <laughs> for our own lives and for our church. Friends, we make plans all the time and just ask God to bless them. How about before we make plans, we get on our knees and say, God, give us a clear sense of direction for what you want us to do, where you want us to go. Not just in our lives personally, but as a church. Pray for your church that way. And then third, pray for the lost family and neighbors that you have. There are people around you who don't know the Lord. You just need to talk to them and find out. And I believe there's lost people who come and sit on our church pews. I want to pray for them as well. And so for the next six Wednesdays, I'm calling on you to do this with me. To join me in prayer. Pray on your own at home and then gather with us here on Wednesday nights. And we're going to pray for these things together. We've had some good prayer meetings the last couple of weeks. Those of you who have been here, say amen. Amen. I'd like to have more, peop more people say amen next week, okay? This is what I'm calling on you to do because God's mighty hand, he's proved it over and over and over again that God's mighty hand works for the good of those who seek him. Let's seek the Lord together. And so I'm going to ask you this morning, if you will seek the face of God, however it is that you're going to fast, if you're going to do it this particular way or if you've got to do it another way for your health, that's fine. If you will commit with me for these next six weeks to seek God's face and seek his direction and to ask him to save our neighbors and our family, would you come forward down here and kneel with me in prayer today? I'm going to pray, and when I say amen, just come on down. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for these people, your holy people, your saints, whom you love. Lord, I pray that we would pray. Move our hearts, move the hearts of your people to seek you, to fast and pray that your good hand might work here. Lord, I pray that now, as this service is concluded, that your people would get up and come pray with me, and that we would seek your face for these things. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.